Would you pray with me as we go to the Word of God tonight? Thank you, Father, for this time now. It's really one of the highlights of our lives, Lord, to open the Bible and to see what you have for us, what truths you have to thrill our hearts, to remind us to follow Christ in all of our ways, and to comfort us, Lord, that in the midst of a difficult world, in the midst of difficult lives, we serve a sovereign God. And we would join our Lord Jesus Christ in praying that we would desire your will to be done in our lives so that we might do all that we can to glorify and honor you. And it is only in your will that that happens. Lord, let this time in your word be useful to your people and honoring and glorifying to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. There is a single word, which is a hot button. It's a word which will incur the wrath of all unbelievers and, frankly, a lot of professing Christians. It's a word that also acts really as a test of the genuineness of someone's salvation in Christ. It's a word that inherently expects self-denial and self-deprecation. This word is often mistaken for other concepts such as victimhood or abuse or oppression. But it's actually a word that in many ways could be said to characterize the entirety of the Christian life. Everything in the Christian life centers on this word. It's a word which applies to every single Christian just in different ways. It's a word which God uses to craft the day-to-day living out of our faith. It's a word which tests the soul and exposes the sin of our own hearts. It's one word which supposedly in our sophistication we really should have gotten past now. A word which worldly wisdom says is archaic, it's out of date, it's old-fashioned, it's antiquated. And in fact, in many evangelical circles, this word causes disdain and arrogant expressions of how progressive and broad-minded the new generation of church attenders really are now. And It's a word which any number of pastors shudder to even speak aloud. It's a word which is joked about nervously in sermons if it's ever mentioned. It's a word which is covered up in its seriousness with humor and laughter. And it's a word which is such a stick of lit dynamite to even say it, much less speak openly of it, that we tend to avoid it. And unfortunately, I gave away the word in my sermon title, if you read the bulletin, but the word is submission. Submission is a, is a powder keg, an explosive word which causes all kinds of controversy. But in the New Testament, the idea of submission is part and parcel of being a genuine believer in Christ. It's part of who we are. The main Greek word translated to submit, hupatasso, means to subject yourself to someone else, to subordinate yourself to another, to obey another, to place yourself under the authority of another. In 1 Corinthians 14.34, the women are to keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but are to, there's that word, subject themselves as the law also says. Meaning that the women of the church, incidentally this goes for men as well, are to be learners in their attitude, not to be arrogant in that they want to talk more than they want to listen. 2 Corinthians 9.13, Paul tells the Corinthian believers, because of your proven character given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience. Same word to your confession of the gospel of Christ. Paul is speaking to the Corinthian believers concerning 
his financial collection for the desperate situation of the Jerusalem church. And he says that their obedience, their submission to give generously as those who receive the gospel of Christ will give God glory. Ephesians 5.21 says that we are being subject to one another. Same word, in the fear of Christ. This is in the context, by the way, of the gathered church. When we gather together, we assemble together to worship. That this is a time to submit to one another. That we are the same in Christ. We're humble, we're worshipful, we're sobered, we're united together. That the worship setting of all times should be a time of unity and like-mindedness. That's how we submit to one another. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. That there is a tremendous peace for a wife who simply bypasses the idea of her husband and sees her submission to his authority in the home as serving the Lord himself. That her husband is a means to a greater end, and that is showing love to God. Or we could think of 1 Timothy 2.11. A woman must learn in quietness and all submission that there is an attitude of eagerness to gain instruction, to gain wisdom, to gain holiness through the word of God. And without reference to gender at all, Titus 2.9 says, urge slaves to be subject, same word, be subject to their own masters in everything, to be pleasing, not contradicting. That those who work for others will find the greatest joy, the greatest satisfaction in simply going all in in pleasing the one for whom they work. In Titus 3.1, we're told, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. That Christians are not called to lead the next revolution. We're not called to always be seen as the ones who buck against good laws and reasonable authority. That's not our role in the world. In Hebrews 13.17, speaking of the relationships within the church between sheep and shepherds, The writer reminds us, obey your leaders and submit to them. Same word, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so that they will do this with joy and not with groaning for this will be unprofitable for you. That submission is not for the good of the person being submitted to. Submission is for the good of the person who is submitting. That the Christian who truly loves Christ and the church won't be the troublemakers won't be the one who makes church leaders lose sleep and groan in agony at problems caused to the whole body. And just to be very, very clear, Scripture says that the sign of an unbeliever is a refusal to submit to the Word of God. Romans 8, verse 7 says, Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Now, if you are a believer in Christ, you have first submitted yourself to Christ in salvation. We don't come to Christ with our head lifted up. We don't come in pride. We come bowed down in humiliation, don't we? Not just humility, but in humiliation. We come entrusting ourselves to the one who is our new kurios, Lord. And we are his beloved douloi, his slaves. The New Testament is abundantly clear about this. And then, after that, Out of love for our master, out of love for our Lord, he has set up functional orders in which we demonstrate our love for him by carrying out God's will in whatever place he puts us. And to be very clear, all Christians submit to someone. No one is exempt. And so any truth about submission from Scripture applies to each and every Christian. And we could say this, I think, with a lot of confidence a reluctance and a reticence to truly embrace 
the submission that characterizes the believer in Christ, this is a cause of tremendous joylessness and bitterness. I've lost track as a pastor of the number of times I've done counseling in which somebody is joyless and they're bitter and we can find the root cause somewhere has to do with lack of submission to someone or something. On the other hand, a total embracing of submission is a major part of the the available peace and contentment that God gives to every believer who will simply obey. It's the central safe place of obedience. Submission being a daily part of our lives can cause that peace, cause that contentment. And yes, wives submit to their husbands. That's the one we tend to jump to. But what about other situations? Submitting to a God-ordained painful trial. And simply letting it be okay. Submitting to a humbling experience brought by the Lord. Submitting to the conviction of the Holy Spirit as you sense correction. Submitting to the Word of God when what you're doing is not what you're reading. How about submitting to a task or an event you don't want to do but you should? In the church, elders in the church, we submit to one another in deference to each other for the sake of unity and the common cause of the gospel. How about submitting to the correction of a brother or sister, even if it's not done perfectly? How about a Christian man submitting to the correction given by a sister in the Lord who also happens to be his wife? How about submitting to a physical condition that God doesn't seem to be eliminating, that you don't want, but it's there? All of us have something or someone to whom we submit. And you submit in the name of trusting in the Lord and obeying the Lord's sovereign design in your life And if you try to grit your teeth and just get through it in human power, particularly when you're submitting to a person, if you try to say, I'm going to submit if it kills me, you're probably not going to experience any joy because reticent and and reluctant obedience doesn't produce joy. Only all-out obedience produces joy. And what if you're submitting to a situation that feels unjust or feels unfair, a Husband who is not as kind as he ought to be. A supervisor who is inept or harsh. A parent who may let sinful emotion rule him or rule her. What do you do then? Well, that was actually the situation that the Jews in Jerusalem shortly before or shortly after the return of Nehemiah, this is the situation they found themselves in. Being tasked with a seemingly impossible assignment and having to endure spiritual and even physical attacks at the same time. And what they did in the face of overwhelming oppression and humiliation was to submit to the Lord's will and to do what He asked regardless of how hard it was and to do so with grace and determination and because of their success in their submission, we find great inspiration from this. And if you're not there already, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 3. In Nehemiah 3 and 4, we're going to see that the Jews in Jerusalem and the surrounding area They haven't been model covenant keepers. We've seen that already. They've just gotten through the crisis of intermarrying with foreign families. But now that God has sent Nehemiah to pave the way to rebuild the broken down walls of Jerusalem, the Jews are finding themselves at a huge disadvantage. They have this Herculean task ahead of them. This is a far cry from the years past when the previous generation had abandoned the work of the Lord and just built themselves really beautiful homes trying to just enjoy their lives. But now they're called by God to attempt the impossible. They're going to submit to God's wishes for them to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem while being surrounded by enemies. They're going to defend the honor and the glory of God by building protection around His chosen city. 
So from our text tonight of Nehemiah 3 and 4, I'd like to extract some principles for all of us to take away concerning submission. And you might say, how are we going to do two whole chapters tonight? We did 28 this morning, so this feels like nothing uh, to me. I'd like to show you five principles of godly submission. And, And I'm really convinced these are going to help give you joy, give you relief, give you delight. Because what we're going to see is that true submission from the heart is completely dependent on the Lord and not dependent on yourself. It it can't be. So five principles of godly submission. The first principle, all believers submit to God. All believers submit to God. Now, what I mean by that is that all true believers submit to God, not all professing believers, but we're going to go into the assumption of true believers. All believers submit to God. Nehemiah opens this situation in chapter 3 by listing those Jews who rebuilt the wall and repaired the wall. And it seems to be a selective list of some key men who were involved. Now, geographically, it's interesting. This chapter is going to describe the the wall being rebuilt in certain sections and, and repaired in other sections. And it begins from the Sheep Gate, which is the northeast corner of the wall. And it's going to go counterclockwise all the way around in Nehemiah's description. I won't read the whole chapter because it's just a a list of the men involved in the particular tasks they accomplished. But I do want to give a couple of highlights and point out two main important features. Two important features. The, The first one is that all classes of people were involved. All classes of people were involved. In other words, all people were equal in terms of submitting to the hard work of this project. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They set it apart as holy and made its doors stand. And they set apart as holy the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel. So right off here, Nehemiah heads up the list by showing that the high priest himself and his family are putting on their overalls and taking up their tools and they're rebuilding one of the gates. Chapter 3, verse 18 after him, their brothers made repairs under Bavai, the son of Hinnadad, the official of the other half of the district of Kela. What does that tell us? It tells us that an important governing official, official is there. He's getting his hands dirty making repairs. And Nehemiah makes certain to highlight that men from different communities are all working together, different parts of the area. Uh, verse 2, I'll just run through this quickly. Next to him, the men of Jericho built. Verse 5, the Tekoites. Verse 7, next to them, Melatiah the Gibeonite and Jaden the Maranathite. Then you have in verse 13, Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah. You have verse 26, the temple servants living in Ophel. And 27, again, the Tekoites. You also had men from different trades, different skills working together. Not not doing their trade, but just working alongside one another. In in verse 8, Next to him, Uzael, the son of Herhariah, of the goldsmiths made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers. So you have a guy who's a goldsmith and a guy who makes uh, fragrances working next to each other. Verse 32, similarly, very last verse of the chapter. Between the upper room of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. So the first important feature, all classes of people were involved. Second important feature They were submitting to this task not because they were being driven or even necessarily inspired by Nehemiah. They seemed to have a higher motivation. 
It wasn't just that they were under good leadership. Nehemiah himself is consistently seen to quickly point all glory to God, even when he himself is being faithful. Nehemiah himself isn't even mentioned in chapter 3. Now in verse 16, you see the name Nehemiah. That's a different man. Nehemiah's role so far has been to secure permission to build from King Artaxerxes of Persia and to acquire all the necessary building materials. Now, why is this important? I'm pointing this out because at times, Nehemiah chapter 3 is often taught or written about as an example of Nehemiah's tremendous leadership and organization. But he's not even mentioned. That misses the whole point. Nehemiah isn't mentioned and he's likely not the one who actually organized the work itself. The whole point here and the more glorious implication is that all these men from priests to common laborers from multiple communities, from multiple walks of life, they were all equal at the foot of the wall. That's what was important. Just like you and I as Christians, we're all equal at the foot of the cross. It's the same concept. All of us serve Christ as our Lord. All of us are douloi, slaves of Christ. And it's to Him that we're accountable. And so whatever situation or station in life God has put you, that's where you bloom. That's where you submit willingly. That's where you're joyful in His plan for you. You don't find Christian joy by asking for a new plan. You find Christian joy by liking the plan that God gave you. It's really that simple. You ask this question, to what or whom am I called to submit? And then answer that question by making that the major focus of your life. That results in peace, it results in joy, it results in contentment. I think that this wall project is a beautiful picture of the church of Jesus Christ, isn't it? We know this from the New Testament, neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, all working together for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ and for the joy of the church. It's a beautiful picture. It reminds us our first principle is all believers submit to God. It's the second principle we could extract. And now we're going to get more into some admonition. Second principle is respond to spiritual attacks with prayer. Respond to spiritual attacks with prayer. What was it that was going to make this rebuilding project such an impossible challenge, at least from a human standpoint? What was making that happen? Well, interstage left... The old villains from chapters 1 and 2, Sanballat, the governor of Samaria, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official. Here they come again. These guys are like a wart you just can't get rid of. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now it happened that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and very vexed and mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they complete it in a day? Can they bring the stones to life from the dusty rubble, though they are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, Even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. I think it was meant to be funny, and I don't think many people laughed. Well, what is Nehemiah doing now? He's recording, he's going back and filling in some details about the rebuilding of the wall. And the first thing he records here is the intimidation and the mocking. And this is how bullies work. They begin by psyching themselves up, so to speak, in a group, right? And so now Nehemiah for chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7 is going to fill in some details. And here in these first three verses of chapter 4, he gives us an insider's look at the scorn and the laughter and the mocking from these wicked men. 
First, Sanballat, the governor of Samaria, speaks up. He's angry, he's furious, and he gives this mocking speech in front of his people, and as we'll find out soon, also in front of his military. And he asks this sarcastic question, what are these feeble Jews doing? And then he follows it up with four rhetorical questions to put down and minimize and dehumanize the Jews building the the wall of Jerusalem. What are these feeble Jews doing? Then he says, are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they complete it in a day? Can they bring the stones to life? In other words, do they really think they'll finish this wall? Do they really think they'll have enough protection to actually offer sacrifices to their God? Do they really think they're going to finish in one day? That's an exaggeration. Nobody ever said that. Do they really think they can restore broken down and fire damaged stones to the glorious wall again? Sanballat is doing what all bullies do. He's laughing at the weak in front of a crowd who's intimidated by him. Then Tobiah the Ammonite jumped in. The strongest bullies always have to get some weaklings around them to to support them, to draw others into their wickedness. And Tobiah jumps in to tell a, a kind of not really very funny joke, to sarcastically say that the Jews' wall building was going to be so bad that even a fox jumping on it would cause an avalanche of stones. But this is anti-Semitism in classic form, treating Jews like a lower class of person. It's been happening for 3,500 years. And so the Jews are facing a spiritual attack, hatred of God's people consistent for these three and a half millennia. Even prominent members of our own government today abhor Israel. They openly say that Jews have no right to a nation of their own. On the contrary, the Jews are the only people in history that has God himself decreeing the exact part of land that belongs to them. So we would disagree with any pushback against Israel. In your particular situation, where you're submitting to a difficult trial or a difficult person, or maybe that's the same thing all rolled into one gloriously difficult package, what are your spiritual enemies? Well, there's two of them. There are two spiritual enemies that hate your submission as unto the Lord, enemies which attack you and try to undermine obedience to the Lord. I'll spend a short bit of time on the first one and a longer bit of time on the second one. The first enemy you have, the first spiritual enemy, consists of external direct attacks. External direct attacks, genuine wickedness coming at you. All of you have experienced this at one level or another and the feeling of helplessness and degradation that comes from unbelievers or comes from a difficult situation. But that's not the enemy I'm primarily concerned with us dealing with tonight. Because in the end, God will deal with all enemies of righteousness. All you have to do is wait long enough and it'll happen. I'm more concerned with the second enemy, the second purveyor of a spiritual attack. And it's you. It's yourself. Telling yourself that you don't deserve to be in this situation. Succumbing to anger, to bitterness, to dragging your feet in your own heart, trying to tough it out instead of embracing what God has for you and receiving it with joy. One of the New Testament verses that commands our submission, I read it earlier, gives us a tremendous example. It's given to those under human authority. Titus 2 verse 9, urge slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be pleasing not contradicting. This is not toughing it out. This is not anger. This is not bitterness. This is not dragging your feet, so to speak. Paul says to be pleasing. It's a word that means to be well-pleasing, to go above and beyond. If you're asked to do this much, you do this much. 
and to be not contradicting. It means you're not arguing all the time. And yes, sometimes the person to whom you submit may be wrong. They may be wrong often. But that doesn't mean you continually point it out. It means you make that person glad and grateful that you're in their corner. It speaks of loyalty and of helpfulness. This means asking questions of yourself and and even maybe asking the question of the one to whom you submit. How can I make my service to you more of a joy for you? How can I be a, a blessing to you? How can I be a blessing in this situation? You may not be thinking right now of submitting to a person. You may be thinking of a situation you have to submit to. Okay, how can I be a blessing to those around me even while I'm in this trial? Even while I'm suffering, how can I make the lives of others more joyful? Ultimately, the believer who continues to have a drag-the-feet attitude to be a cause for groaning and not for joy, listen carefully, that believer is not fully convinced that God's sovereign will is actually the best course of action. And they can become convinced, and they wouldn't say it out loud, but it is possible to become convinced, I feel like I have a better idea for my life than what God is doing right now. But the believer who's fully convinced can have this peaceful and content demeanor. What is well-pleasing? What will cause joy? What will not cause groaning? And I can't emphasize this enough. All of us are slaves. Every one of us. It's just a matter of what you choose to be enslaved to. You can be enslaved to your sin and have the Lord sanctify you despite yourself. Or you can be enslaved to Christ and have the Lord sanctify you through your obedience. This is what Paul was talking about in Romans 6, beginning in verse 12. He said, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you go on presenting yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? What does that mean? It means if you can be convinced that being a slave to Christ, no matter what that brings, following whatever orders he gives, that you can be content in any station, any role, any situation, if you will submit to it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul gave wisdom. It's not really a command, but it's wise, inspired advice. He said in 1 Corinthians seven seventeen, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. What is he talking about there? There's more specifics in 1 Corinthians 7 that I won't go into. But he said, if you're single, let it okay to be single. Let it be okay to be single. If you're married, let it be okay to be married. If you're a, a slave, let it be okay to be a slave. Wherever you are in life, just park there and it's okay. Because you can be content anywhere. So how do you defeat these spiritual enemies? Both the external and the internal. Well, no big surprise to us in Ezra Nehemiah, you defeat those spiritual enemies in prayer. You defeat them in prayer. And listen to Nehemiah's prayer, chapter 4, verse 4. It's short. His previous prayer in chapter 1 was long. This one's short. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. 
Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in the land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you for they have vexed the builders. Wow, that's aggressive. That's a pretty no-nonsense prayer, I would say. Basically, he's saying, dear God, hammer them, amen. And that's his prayer. This is a much different tone, a much different focus than Nehemiah's contrite prayer of chapter 1. This is what's called an imprecatory prayer, a calling down of curses on the enemy of God. But I want you to notice some features of this prayer. I'm going to give you three of them. First of all, it's a biblical prayer. It is a biblical prayer. Nehemiah is basically calling to mind the Abrahamic covenant. In one part of the Abrahamic covenant that God gave to, to Abraham, Genesis 12:3, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. All Nehemiah is doing is calling God's word to mind back to himself. God promised Abraham that the one who scorns and despises Abraham and by implication his descendants would be cursed by God. So so don't criticize Nehemiah for not being evangelistic. He's more concerned for the glory of God than he is for winning souls, as he ought to be. Sanballat and Tobiah had mocked the God of Israel and God's people. They're in the category of those who have cursed Israel. So it's a biblical prayer. But I'd also point out that it's a logical prayer. It's very logical. Nehemiah prays for these men and their people, the, the ones coming against the Jews, to be captured and taken away. Now, why is that a logical prayer? Well, it's, it's sort of like Nehemiah is telling God, if you brought disaster at that level to your people whom you love, how much more should you bring the same thing on those people who hate you? That's very logical. So it's a biblical prayer, it's a logical prayer, and it's an eschatological prayer. It's an end times prayer. It's a prayer calling forward to the end times. It's an eschatological or end times prayer. Nehemiah is requesting that God not forgive the sins of these men, that at the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20, Sanballat and Tobiah are to appear before God as unredeemed unbelievers. Why? Nehemiah says they have vexed the builders. It means they've angered them. They've provoked them. They've been abusive and bullying toward God's people. And God will repay. They have no heart of repentance. They have no heart of ignorance. They're acting in full knowledge that the Jews are the people of God and yet they're rebelling anyway. They're hateful anyway. They're disgusting toward God's people anyway. And this isn't merely a couple of men who are hard to get along with. These are... Men leading other men to aggressively come against the people of God and God's purposes in rebuilding the wall. They are the ones who have drawn the proverbial line in the sand, not God's people. I think for us in the American church, we have a hard time relating to imprecatory prayer. That's hard for us. I think at times we want to feel that we are more compassionate than God is. But not only does Nehemiah make a good case here, but just scan through the book of Psalms and you'll find it is loaded with imprecatory prayers. And you might say, what is the purpose of an imprecatory prayer? Are you ready for this? It's for your benefit. It's for your benefit. God's going to judge the wicked anyway, whether you pray or not. But an imprecatory prayer is for your benefit. What's so wonderful about it? What's so glorious about an imprecatory prayer? What's so humble? What's so beautiful about an imprecatory prayer? You might say, that doesn't doesn't sound very beautiful to me. No, it is beautiful. Because it benefits you. Did you notice that Nehemiah did not take matters into his own hands? 
that by praying an imprecatory prayer, he didn't go to try to fight Sanballat, to fight Tobiah. He didn't aggressively go after them. He didn't try to take his own vengeance. Oh, he prayed a big old prayer. God, don't ever save them. Fine. But in whose hands does that place the sovereignty of that situation? It places it in God's hands. The situation in which you find yourself submitting to another or to a circumstance, revenge or trying to be a thorn in the side or punishing that person somehow is outside the realm of your rights. You don't have the right to do that. And and I'm fearful for Christians who have bought into the lie of victimhood and bought into the lie of my rights and what I should demand because you could find yourself standing before the Lord saved, yes, but Him saying to you, How can I reward you? The entire focus of your life was to submit in this situation and you bucked against it your whole life. And they would find themselves in the 1 Corinthians 3 situation saved, but as through fire with nothing, no reward. Romans 12, 17 speaks of our relationships in this world, never paying back evil for evil to anyone, respecting what is good in the sight of all men. Instead, we leave eschatological room for God, end times room for God. Romans 12, 19, never taking your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. In fact, Romans 12, 20 tells you what to do with someone who treats you like an enemy. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. The person to whom you're submitting to is is placed there by God. Romans 13 says this. So if that person is acting in a wicked manner, it's not your place to be vengeful. Now, you might ask, why didn't Nehemiah send Sanballat and Tobiah a fruit basket or a cookie gram or something? Why didn't he reach out like that? Well, these men are aggressively fighting against the people of God and it wasn't to them that Nehemiah was submitting. It was to God that Nehemiah was submitting. So we ought to make that distinction very clear. But remember that I said that perhaps the worst spiritual attack comes from your own sin nature, from the temptation to be difficult, to be harsh, to be a thorn in the side, or, or to walk through a trial with complaining and griping and moaning and not, not lifting up your faith and your heart to the Lord, but to get to a, a trial with just a total negative attitude that's not trusting the Lord. So what do you do then? You pray imprecatory prayers against your own sin nature. Against your own propensity to not walk in the Spirit, to make a challenging situation worse by your attitude. You pray and you determine to exhibit the the fruit of the Spirit. And incidentally, the light bulb might go on and you might have that experience of, wait a minute, this trial might be precisely for the purpose of making me exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. Bingo, exactly. And if you will trust the Lord that he is working in you, then you can receive it because the Lord disciplines those whom he what? Loves. First principle, all believers submit to God. Second principle, respond to spiritual attacks with prayer. Third principle, submit to God with a right heart. Submit to God with a right heart. Although under spiritual attack, look at the attitude of the builders. Chapter four, verse six. So we built the wall and the whole wall was joined together to half its height and the people had a heart to work. Yes, they completed the wall to half its height. Now the wall is all joined together. They just needed to add height to it. That would be very encouraging. 
But what Nehemiah highlights there is their heart attitude. They were enthusiastic. They were persistent. That's the exciting part of that verse. And what's the spiritual principle here? Well, clearly the the people's focus was not on their spiritual opponents, but on pleasing God. That's where their heart was. That's where their eyes were, were focused. And there's the secret to contentment in the midst of submission, the heart attitude of looking heavenward to please the Lord and to do good and to do right. This is submission that goes far beyond just going through the motions externally. It goes beyond just fulfilling the letter of the law. There's a popular concept in the workplace that is kind of going viral over various social media outlets right now and people all over are picking up on it and they're doing it. And the nickname for this concept is quiet quitting. Quiet quitting has to do with doing the bare minimum required on the job. It's associated with unhappy and disengaged employees in the workplace. This isn't talking about a reasonable balance between work and home. It's a conscious effort to put no effort. That's what quiet quitting is now. This is absolutely an unbiblical response for a Christian. By the way, just so you know, business owners and managers are now responding with another trend they're calling quiet firing. Not giving raises, not giving promotions to those who are just doing the bare minimum. And that is just, and that is right. I want to show you what our attitude is to be. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Because I think in Colossians 3, we get one of the most compact and condensed sets of admonitions to Christians concerning submission. We'll go to Colossians 3, right near the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 18. Colossians 3.18. This is just a bullet point list of some ways we submit. Chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. And the implication here, by the way, is that husbands are submitting to Christ. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but with integrity of heart, fearing the Lord. This doesn't indicate quiet quitting or just doing the bare minimum. This indicates being all in, having what the title of tonight's message is aggressive submission. That your submission is from the heart, fearing the Lord. Why fearing the Lord? Because in Jeremiah 17.10, God says, I, Yahweh, search the heart. I test the inmost being, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Hebrews 4.12, you know this one, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of what? The heart. The fear of the Lord means that it is possible to look submissive for a lifetime and have a heart of rebellion and stand before God and receive no reward. So in the context of submission then, Paul gives this admonishment. Chapter 3, verse 23, the next verse. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Serve the Lord Christ. How do you know your heart is not right with respect to submission? How do you know? You may choose to cultivate negative, disrespectful thoughts. And these might be thoughts toward God, too, when you tell the Lord, I'm really sick of this trial. Instead of, Lord, how can I work through it? 
The Lord sees these thoughts. And so acting submissive outwardly doesn't really do any good because without the correct heart, you are in essence quiet quitting. You may become overly critical. You may be critical first in your heart and then with your tongue. It might be the attitude of, well, I have to submit, but I'm going to make sure so-and-so continually knows all my grievances and every single thing that bothers me. Early on in my pastoral ministry, I had a man in our church that decided it was his role to have the spiritual gift of criticism. And pretty much once a week, I got an email or a letter from him telling, him something, telling me something I did wrong. And eventually he said, you know, are you going to respond? I said, I respond every week. I hit the delete button because it's, it's not helpful. You find it hard to genuinely pray for those to whom you submit. Maybe you're not overly difficult, but maybe you're not overly helpful either. That you're just doing your part, so to speak, but that's it. The Lord sees that and he doesn't like that. Whether you're leading a company with 10,000 employees or pushing a broom and nobody knows who you are, you do it as unto the Lord. You do it as unto Christ. There's no joy in spiritual quiet quitting, if I can call it that. There's no delight in that. Being a quiet quitter doesn't bring rejoicing to your heart. Instead, it just feeds the sinful monster of entitlement and my rights and waiting for a situation to change instead of praying for your heart to change. Turn back with me to Nehemiah 4. The first principle is that all believers submit to God. The second principle is respond to spiritual attacks with prayer. Third principle, submit to God with a right heart. And a fourth principle, persevere in prayer. Persevere in prayer. And you say, wait a minute, I thought we already talked about the prayer part. You don't just pray once for God's help in a difficult situation and then check that off your list. No, prayer is part of the package and it is a beautiful, beautiful result of what God places you in. Whatever cauldron, whatever difficulty, whatever fire God places you in, it's to make you pray. And probably the first thing in your prayers you ought to thank the Lord for is thank you for the situation that makes me pray. What happened when Sanballat and Tobiah heard that the wall, contrary to their mocking in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, what happened when they saw it was actually on the verge of completion? Chapter 4, verse 7. Now it happened that when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the places broken down began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them joined together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. Now the opposition is heating up. The Jews are literally surrounded by enemies. Sanballat, the governor of Samaria to the north, Tobiah and the Ammonites to the east, Arabs to the south, and Ashdodites to the west. They're surrounded. Just a little interesting note here in verse 6. Nehemiah says that the wall was joined together. And here in verse 8, the verb is the same one that says the enemies joined together. This is a heightened spiritual attack because now actual military action is getting ready to happen. And what did the Jews do in response? Verse 9, But we prayed to our God, and because of them we stood a guard against them day and night. Notice that they pray and they make practical preparations as well. They posted guards. And as news of the troop buildup all around them reached other towns in Judah, some of the people began to panic. They began to lament, not the ones at the wall, but those living around them. 
chapter 4, verse 10, Then Judah said, The strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the walls. Remember that a few years earlier, a military action against them had been successful. It had stopped the construction of the temple. Ezra 4 records that. And so apparently, the enemies of God's people were hatching a plot to, to bring a secret attack, a surprise attack, and some of the Jews in the surrounding towns caught wind of it, and they're panicked. Verse 11, our adversaries said, they will not know or see until we come upon, among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. Now it happened when the Jews who lived near them came and said to us ten times, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. So Nehemiah responded, verse 13, I had men stand in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places, and I had the people stand by families with their swords, spears, and bows. Then I saw their fear. And I arose and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, do not fear them. Remember the Lord who is great and fearsome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Now it happened that when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had thwarted their counsel, then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. Did you hear Nehemiah's simple encouragement? Remember the Lord. He's great. He's fearsome. What are the secret spiritual attacks that would come against you in a situation and where you're, you're submitting to God. Can I tell you this? Satan's attacks are only secret attacks if you're not expecting them. And so if you expect them, that's what the Bible calls being alert, being on guard. So what do you do instead? The Apostle Paul told us what to do. Ephesians 6, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the, the might of His strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Just a little contextual note about this glorious encouragement toward spiritual strength. What did Paul write right before giving the whole section in Ephesians 6 on the armor of God? What came right before it? Ephesians 5.21, be subject to one another. 5.22, wives be subject to your own husbands. 5.25, husbands submit to Christ by loving your wives. 6.1, children obey your parents. Parents obey the Lord. 6.5, slaves obey your masters as slaves of Christ. And 6, 9, masters, obey your master in heaven. The armor of God in Ephesians 6 is given to us in the context of submission. That's what it's for, to get you through submission. And how Satan would love to see you as a Christian live a life of rebellion and lack of submission. Why? Because it dishonors God. And that is Satan's entire goal, is to dishonor and take glory from God. And by the way, it also makes the gospel appear weak. In Titus 2.5, Paul commands wives to be subject to their own husbands and, and he gives a reason, so that the word of God will not be slandered. What does that mean? The word of God says a Christian is a slave, is dead to himself. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, Galatians 2.20. And so by not submitting, you slander the word of God and you say the gospel makes no difference. But by submitting, you say that it does. Your true and genuine and heartfelt, aggressive submission shows that the gospel in all its power and all its glory is fully transforming. And so you persevere in prayer. There's one more principle. The last one is submit intentionally. 
Submit intentionally. All believers submit to God. Respond to spiritual attacks with prayer. Submit to God with the right heart. Persevere in prayer. Submit intentionally. Proactively. I told you this morning we were going to come to what is the most famous and well-known image or picture or story of the returned exile. It's an image that tells of the desperate situation of the Jews in Jerusalem and yet it gives praise to their courage and their determination to follow the Lord at all costs to submit to His will to their own peril. Chapter 14, verse, chapter 4, rather, verse 16. And it happened from that day on, half of my young men carried on the work while half of them took hold of the spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates, and the commanders were behind the whole house of Judah. So you have the workforce divided in half, half of them acting as soldiers and guards, the other half as workmen. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other holding a weapon. That's the most famous picture in all of these books. A, a, a trowel in one hand and a spear in the other. As for the builders, verse 18, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built while the trumpeter stood near me. I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive and we are separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, there gather together to us. Our God will fight for us. So we kept doing the work with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, let each man with his young man spend the night within Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us by night and a worker by day. So neither I, my brothers, my young men, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes. Each took his weapon even to the water. You notice that not only did Nehemiah have a plan, but God was behind the plan. He said in verse 20, our God will fight for us. There's a dependence on God. It doesn't mean lack of planning. It just means you depend on the Lord. And so Nehemiah has given the Jews a proactive defensive plan, all while trusting the Lord to help them. And listen, this is a a key concept for us. True submission to the Lord doesn't involve merely in your own power, trying to have a good attitude, trying to gut it through, trying to just drag your feet through. Instead, true submission to a person or to a situation finds its greatest outworking in a positive intentionality to all that you are to do that if you are confined to a very limiting situation because of physical health okay then what am i going to do to intentionally make the very most of this and be the most pleasing to the lord how am i going to be intentional if i'm submitting to an organization or to a person who is difficult and who isn't fair how am i going to make the very most of this how am i going to be a blessing how am i going to cause joy to those all around me That you're not just trying to make it through that never brings joy. Instead, you replace a bad attitude with proactive strategies and determinations. You ask yourself the question, what one or two higher efforts can I make to be a joy, to be a blessing, and to be a delight as one submitting to God? That's the only pathway to joy and submission. You embrace it completely. And you find joy in the Lord instead of the vain attempt to find joy in trying to manipulate or coerce or or quiet quit your way to happiness in the Lord? Where is true joy? True joy is found in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves. 
not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. If you determine in your mind that you are the least important person in your life, you will always be happy. Did you know that? You'll always be joyful because if you're the least important person, you can't ever be disappointed. If you have no dreams, no aspirations, you can't be disappointed. Whatever the Lord does, the truly mature Christian learns to almost have a, 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 an objective sitting back with an interest I wonder what the Lord's going to do with my life. Oh, look, cancer for the fourth time. Isn't that interesting? Oh, look, this job trial. Again, isn't that interesting? Oh, look, I have eight kids and four of them are not turning out well. Isn't that interesting? Do nothing from selfish ambition. That's where true joy is. Let me finish off tonight with three brief applications. These are applications we've been doing all through Ezra and Nehemiah. The first one is growing in Christ's likeness. How do you grow in Christ's likeness through this? It was the will of God that they rebuild the wall. That was clear. Yet God was also the one allowing the opposition from Sanballat and Tobiah, right? He's sovereign. And we saw earlier in Colossians 3.18 and following the list of situations which call upon the Christian to submit wives to husbands, husbands to Christ, children to parents, fathers to the Lord, slaves to masters, and so on. And remember that in all these submission situations, Paul admonishes the Christian to keep their eyes further ahead than merely the situation at hand. He, he says we're serving the Lord Christ. But how do you do that? How do you keep your eyes beyond? How are you empowered to look beyond that difficult submission situation? Context is everything in Scripture. And the context of the submission passages in Colossians 3, go back, it goes back to the beginning of the chapter and it answers the question for the reader, with this answer. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Let me just say this, the the parable that Jesus tells of the poor man named Lazarus and the rich man and the poor man Lazarus was just just hoping for crumbs from the table of the rich man. The rich man had all these things in life and Lazarus literally just just laying on the ground, just destitute in life. And we know how the story ends. Lazarus was a believer in in the God of the Bible and the rich man was not. And we get a peek into eternity. And Lazarus is in glory. Enjoying all the goodness that God has. And the rich man is in the flames of Hades. And so don't worry about your situation. God will rectify it. How about the road to the cross? How does Nehemiah 3 and 4 get us to the cross? We wouldn't expect the men working on the wall of Jerusalem to have a clear understanding of the coming cross of Christ. But they did understand that they were serving the Lord and that they demonstrated a willingness to fight and even die in the service of the Lord. For you as New Testament believers in Christ, with the benefit of the revelation of the cross, you can read of the impact of the cross in the same text I just read. Uh, Colossians 3 verse 3 gives us the reason we submit and endure. For you have died. That's why you can endure. You've died. Our lives are now identified with the death of Christ and the the glorious other side of that theological coin is that we're also identified with the resurrected life of Christ. This is all because of the work of Christ on the cross to make propitiation for your sins. And because of this, 
In reality, what happens to you in this life will not and cannot impact your future. In which Colossians 3, 4 says, you will also appear with Him in what? In glory. The Apostle Paul says that the suffering in this life isn't even worth comparing to the glory that's to come. You can't even make the comparison. And how about the road to Christ's coming kingdom? How could we go even farther forward in redemptive history? The Jews working on the wall of Jerusalem had some hope that the completion of the wall would give them a measure of security, a measure of progress as a nation. That was a reasonable hope, and that's what they wanted. And although they're still humbled under the rule of Persia and their numbers are small, the the clear determination and teamwork that they showed from all classes of people, all differing walks of life, it showed that they hoped for better days ahead. And that's a wonderful and a peaceful vantage point from which they took on spiritual attacks and, and submitted to a less than ideal situation. Can I tell you something that we know from Scripture that, that would be helpful to them and is definitely helpful to us? Ezekiel 37.10 gives the glorious prophecy of a future Israel resurrected from the dry bones of a nation seemingly dead. And Ezekiel 37.10 says, And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. See, in the coming day, there will be no Sanballats. There will be no Tobias. No one will be laughing. No one will be mocking when the mighty kingdom of Israel in all her glory arises. And no one will be laughing except for joy when the mighty king of Israel arrives. And as Zechariah 14.9 says, the Lord will be king over all the earth. You see, you can engage in aggressive submission because the king is coming to whom everyone will submit. Amen? That's why we can. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this text. It's so instructive. It's so inspiring to us, Lord. In whatever situation we find ourselves in, Lord, help us to set the example for those around us to have hearts of submission that give in to your will and find joy, contentment, and peace as a result. We thank you and praise you, looking forward to the results of your work in our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen.